Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. appreciate uh, so much the ministry of the choir with us after missing them for so many months, so thank you for sharing gifts with us and leading us in worship. And if you would like to uh, maybe join the choir and you're inspired, um, we'd love to have you do that. So you can talk to Kenton up here in front after service. We'd love to have you join in uh, in that ministry. Well, a few years ago, actually more than a few years ago now, I went back to my hometown for my 30th high school reunion. Uh, How many of you have ever done that before, gone back hometown for your reunion? Okay, a lot of you will kind of maybe relate to this a little bit, but my family had moved right after graduation, so I had not been back to my hometown in almost that entire period of time. So naturally, I wondered what it would be like. You know, would my old friends be there? Um, Would I recognize them after so many years? Would they recognize me? Would they remember me? Would they remember uh, that I had been the quarterback on the football team or that I had set a lot of records on the basketball team? So I drove my rental car to the location of the first event on the first evening of the weekend, and I parked there, and I was surprised. I just sat in my car for a while because I was so nervous about going in. I felt like a junior high kid going to his first dance. I just was nervous about all that. Um, So I finally got up the courage to walk into the house, and my first impression was that I'd walked into a costume party that all my old high school classmates dressed up like old people for a party. And I glanced around, and I wanted to just yell out, what happened to your faces? Then I realized that I probably uh, looked the same way to them. So I walked up to this, uh, uh, this table where a woman was sitting with name tags. And she was kind of recording everyone that came in giving out name tags. And I walked up, and she looked up, at me, and her face lit up, and she went, don't tell me, and then she went, Lee Benedict, (laughs) Uh, no, she went, Jim Mishalak, no, she went, I give up, and I said, I'm, I'm, my name is Brian Coffey, total blank stare, (laughs) no idea who I was, and I wanted to say back, you know, I don't know your name either, so... And then I found out she had become a famous New York City news anchor, and everybody in class knew who she was, so it didn't work out so well. But we're in a series now, working our way through the gospel according to Mark, called Following the King. And last week we saw that um, there was a confrontation, yet another confrontation, about religious rules uh, and the ritual washing of hands, and how Jesus um, was talking about the difference between man-made traditions and genuine faith, and he said it's not what goes into a person from the outside that defiles him or her, it's what comes out of the heart that does that. And then the rest of Mark 7, if you're reading through your journal, personally following through, uh, you'll, you will know that there's a, a, a series of miracles that happen at the end of chapter 7 going into chapter 8. Uh, Jesus heals a woman called a Syrophoenician woman, a foreigner. He heals a deaf-mute man. There's another miraculous feeding of people, and then there's the healing of a blind man. And then we move into the passage we look at today. And what we look at today is really sort of the hinge of the entire Gospel of Mark. It is the turning point from what's come before, all these stories that demonstrate 
Jesus' authority as king. Now it shifts to, Mark's going to show us what Jesus actually came to do. So we're in Mark chapter 8. Uh, you can follow along in your journals, your Bibles, or watch on the screens. Mark chapter 8, I'm going to begin in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now I'm going to stop there after one sentence, uh, because Caesarea Philippi, if you look at this map, was in the very northern part of Israel. You'll see here the Dead Sea to the south, Jerusalem is down there. Then you see Sea of Galilee toward the north. That's where Capernaum was. And then you see way to the top, almost the very top city. You can't read, it's very small. It's Caesarea Philippi. It's like 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, which is about as far north as you could go and still be in Israel at all. And that region uh, was heavily Gentile. And for uh, centuries had been associated with pagan worship, from the worship of Baal in the Old Testament to the Greco-Roman god Pan, uh, the god of nature, uh, and even Herod the Great had built in a temple in that region to uh, one of the Roman emperors. So uh, there was also a deep, this is what, an artist's rendition of what it would look like 2,000 years ago, and there's a deep cave there uh, now, and Jeff and I and our uh, wives visited this place a few years ago, it stood right there. There's a deep cave there, that's what it looks like now, called, that was often referred to as the Gates of Hell. Uh, so this is a very unusual and uncomfortable place for Jesus to take his followers. So he, we, then we continue. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So we're going to start there, and we're going to continue on in uh, the rest of the passage in a few moments. But the first thing we see in this passage is uh, what I'm calling the King Confirmed. The King Confirmed. Now, how many of you remember the TV show To Tell the Truth? Any you remember that show? I remember watching often with my parents as I was growing up. That show was created in 1956, ran for over 20 years, featured a panel of celebrities that interviewed usually three people who all claimed to be the same person. Uh, and it was always someone with a very unique life experience or a very unique profession, like um, a lady who had a pet elephant that slept in her house, or the person who played the character of Big Bird on Sesame Street, or a guy named Jack Mercer, who was the voice of Popeye the Sailor Man in the cartoons. They would have something like that. There'd be three people claiming to be that person, and the panel of celebrities would ask all these questions and eventually try to guess who was telling the truth. That show ran, as I said, for many, many years and has been reformatted in 2016, and it looks like this now. But that it, we, I still watch it every now and then. But the whole premise of To Tell the Truth was to try to figure out the true identity of a person. And Mark, in his gospel, is kind of doing the same thing. Uh, he's writing his gospel to tell us who Jesus is. Right off, if you remember, the very first verse of his gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's telling us that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the king. And then through the first eight chapters we've seen, he uh, has told stories about how Jesus has healed the sick. He cast out demons. He raised a dead girl back to life. He calmed the storm twice. Uh, he walked on the water. He fed an enormous crowd with just a little bit of food. He did that twice. And, but to this point, his true identity 
that is, who he really is and what he came to do, has not yet been fully recognized or understood. So Jesus picks this moment when he's taken the disciples way north to the very shadow of pagan temples, and he asks them two questions. First, who do people say that I am? Now, if Jesus asked that question of us today in our culture, we would give all kinds of answers, wouldn't we? We'd say, well, some say you never lived at all, that you're just a figment of some ancient religious imagination, Lord. We would say, some say you were a great spiritual teacher, kind of like Buddha or Muhammad or Gandhi or Mother Teresa. Some of other faiths, Mormons, think you were the product of a physical union between God and Mary. Jehovah's Witnesses say you are an exalted, created being like Michael the Archangel. And in Jesus' day, there were many, many guesses about who Jesus was as well. When he visited his hometown of Nazareth, people said, isn't this just the carpenter's son? Isn't that who he is? The religious leaders of the day thought he was a false prophet, that he was a sorcerer, maybe even possessed by Satan. The disciples then answered the question by saying in verse 28, and they told him, John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, others say one of the prophets. In other words, many people thought Jesus was important, maybe even sent by God, but not Messiah, not King. And then Jesus turns the question and makes it personal. He says, who do you say that I am? Now, why would Jesus ask this? After months of being with these men, after healing, after walking in the water, why would he ask them? Remember back in chapter 6, when Jesus came to them walking on the water in the night, identified himself as I am, and then gets in the boat and calms the winds? Mark tells us they did not understand, and their hearts were hardened, meaning that even with all they had seen, even with all they had been taught, the disciples were still unclear, a little confused about who Jesus was. And then in this moment, Peter steps up and says, you are the Christ. This is like the game show moment when the the game show host goes, will the real Messiah please stand up? You know, and they fake and they fake and they fake, then he stands up. Now, we have to understand that this is a really bold thing for Peter to say. It's actually a dangerous thing for him to say. Because the word Christ is not a name. You know, that's not like Jesus' last name. The word Christ is a title. It means anointed one, the one chosen by God, empowered by God for a specific task, to accomplish something. Peter is identifying Jesus in no uncertain terms as the Messiah, the King of Israel. Now, remember, in those days, the Roman Empire ruled that region of the world. Caesar was king, the ruler of all things. So to say Jesus was king was to make not just a religious statement, it was to make a political statement. It was a revolutionary statement. That kind of stuff got you in trouble with Rome. In fact, that kind of stuff got you crucified. The Messiah was understood to be the king who would overthrow the Roman uh, oppressors, deliver the nation of Israel, to restore it to King David's glory. So Peter is identifying Jesus as that king. Now the most obvious question uh, for us today is who do we say that he is? To turn it toward ourselves. So how would we answer that question? How would you answer the question? Who Who do you say Jesus is? There are all kinds of options. There is the political Jesus who aligns with all my personal political views and opinions. 
There is the self-help Jesus who gives me tips now and then on how to be the best me I can be. There's the touchdown Jesus who helps me run faster, jump higher, and win Super Bowls. Obviously, the Bears don't believe in that Jesus, but it's kind of a cheap shot, I know, but I throw it in there. But is that all Jesus is? Or is there more? Because even though here Peter makes this confession, you are the Christ, you are the king, you are my king, he doesn't yet understand what kind of king Jesus is. And that leads us to the second point in this passage, the king's cross. The king's cross. Well, on Halloween night, 1977, so today is October 31st. I didn't want to count back how many years this this was. But Halloween night, 1977, I was a senior in college, and the girl I was dating at the time and I decided to go to a Halloween party on campus. It was a costume party, so we dressed up. Uh, She dressed up as a basketball player, and I dressed up as a cheerleader. She wore one of my uniforms, and I had a ribbon in my hair. I wore makeup the, the whole bit. Um, you got, I know you're forming a picture in your mind. So we drove to the party in my car, and at that time, that year, for that one year only, I had a little 1970 British MGB sports car my dad had picked up somewhere. It, was, it wasn't this car. It was beaten up a little bit, uh, rusty, but it was my pride and joy. It had a soft top that I could take off, turn it into an invertible, so I was kind of cruising campus, you know. But it was Octo- October, so the top was on. So I parked outside the student union building. We went up to the party. At some point during the party, we decided to come down to the student union and get a Coke or something because neither one of us drank. Uh, and we got down there. We're having our Coke. Again, I'm dressed up like a girl. She's dressed up like a basketball player. In comes the, the small town sheriff of our town. This is in the south in North Carolina. He was, a, he, was a, he was a large fellow, and he walks in, and he hollers out, anyone know who the little green car this is out here? And I, oh, that's got to be my car. So I walked over, forgetting how I was dressed, and I said, uh, I, I think that's mine. If I, I can move it if I shouldn't have parked there. He goes, no, son, that's not your problem. You need to come out with me. So I followed him out. And he, first, you know, he looked me up and down, and he had this kind of wry smile on his face like college kids you know he took me outside and I couldn't believe what he showed me there was my car but someone on the second story had taken that moment to push one of the giant pumpkins that was a decoration of the party out of the window and it fell straight onto the top of my little pride and joy car crushed the top into the seats smashed the windshield and pumpkin guts were everywhere I'm not kidding my, my car got destroyed by a giant pumpkin I'm standing there dressed like a girl. The, the cop is looking at me. I'm looking at my car. There's a pumpkin all over. And then this, this, this fellow student comes staggering out of the building, clearly rather intoxicated, and he's just blubbering all over himself. I'm oh, sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I didn't see your car. I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it. And it was the guy who pushed it out. And he heard the sound. He came running down because our college had an honor code. You had to admit when you did stuff. So he came down. He, he, I'm the one. I'll pay for it. And he eventually did. But first I had to call the insurance company and explain to them that my car was destroyed by a falling pumpkin. Then I had to call my dad and explain to him. But that's uh, the story of the world, really, when you think about it. Something went wrong, someone did something wrong, something needed to be fixed, restored, something needed to be paid for, somebody had to pay, and that's the story of the world. The Bible tells the story from front to back about what's gone wrong in the world and what's gone wrong in each one of us. And it tells us what God has done and what God is going to do to restore what is broken. 
Verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Now, I, I think it's almost impossible for us to hear these words with the same sort of shock that would have come to those disciples when Jesus said this. We, we are so familiar with the story of Jesus' death and his resurrection, we, don't, we can't hear the offensiveness of what he says here. Because in Peter's mind, in the disciples' minds, the Messiah, the king, will restore David's kingdom. He's a victorious figure. He's a triumphant figure. Peter had no category at all for a Messiah who suffered. None at all. So we see verse 32, and Peter took him, Jesus, aside and began to rebuke him. Now that word rebuke sounds like a bible kind of word. It just means uh, uh, to admonish. It's a, it's a serious word. To censure someone severely, like a parent saying, stop it, to an unruly child. Stop it, stop it, stop it. He rebuked him. Now I think if we were standing by, observing and overhearing or just watching body language, would have made us really uncomfortable to hear this conversation. Peter rebukes Jesus. It's like a child talking back to a parent, a player talking back to his coach, a student talking back to a teacher. He rebukes, what would that have sounded like? Maybe, Jesus, Jesus, hey, what are you talking about? You have to stop talking like that. Don't do that. You're a king. You're the Christ. Kings don't die. Kings don't suffer. Kings rule. Now, why would he talk to Jesus this way? Because Jesus has just said something that makes no sense to him. What Jesus has just said shatters his idea of who Jesus is, of what the Christ is, and what the Christ is going to do. It's exactly the opposite of what Peter hoped for and longed for. Then Jesus rebukes Peter, verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. So now why would Jesus speak so harshly to Peter? I mean, Peter's just doing his best, right? He's doing his best to understand. What does this remind you of? Remember in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation in the wilderness when Satan comes to Jesus three different times, tries to distract him from the mission uh, of of the cross, and Jesus says at one point, uh, away from me, Satan away from me. Because what's at stake here is salvation itself. Sin is in the world. Sin is in people. Sin demands justice and payment. The payment must be in blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, says says God's word. And Jesus is going to make that payment. That's what's at stake. Notice what he says in verse 31. The Son of Man must I put it in red here, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. After three days, rise again, and he said this plainly. The word must there could be translated as necessary. In his book, Jesus the King, Tim Keller writes, this is one of the most significant words in the story of the world. And it's a scary word, just that word must. Because Jesus here is not just predicting what's going to happen. He's saying it must happen. He voluntarily intends to die. He's saying that what is broken in the world cannot be fixed. The world cannot be renewed. We cannot be made new unless the king 
dies. Why? Because something is broken. Something is wrong. Someone has to pay. And Jesus is saying, I am your king, and I am going to make that payment. And that leads us to the third part of this uh, passage, which I'm calling the king's call. Look with me at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is saying that to follow him means three things. First, the one who follows must deny himself. Deny himself. When I was younger, growing up, even in seminary, early ministry days, I would hear this phrase or read this phrase, deny himself, and sort of assume Jesus is talking about denying ourselves, you know, stuff, things, like uh, giving up that extra scoop of ice cream or giving up a couple hours of TV a day or giving up that vacation home by the lake. You know, stuff, luxuries in life. But now I see, I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about literally denying ourselves, our self. What is the self? The Dictionary of Psychology says the self is the totality of the individual consisting of all characteristic attributes, conscious and unconscious, mental and physical. In other words, simply put, the self is what you think about you. The self is what you think about you. It's your identity. Jesus says, deny yourself. Now, how contrary to the world we live in, in our culture, does that sound? How offensive does that sound to our modern culture? Our culture says, what? Find yourself. Be yourself. Express yourself. Fulfill yourself. In his book, called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, author Carl Truman makes the argument that a dramatic change has happened in the concept of self over the last some 300 years. For thousands of years, he says, the self was understood by most people at most times to be defined by the world around us. That is, by family, by community, and specifically by an external source of transcendent truth, God or gods. In other words, our family, our community, and our faith told us who we were and shaped our self. Now, however, for many, many reasons, too long to go into this morning, it's exactly the opposite. In our modern culture, the self is now seen as the source of all truth. And the self is what determines the meaning of family and community and has taken the place of God himself. The self makes God unnecessary in our culture. That's why... Jesus says, in order to follow him, we must deny ourselves. He's saying, in essence, I did not come to serve whoever or whatever you think you are. I did not come to affirm whoever or whatever you think you are. I came to call you to die to that self and to give you a new self, reshaped in my image, reshaped by the cross. Second. He says the one who follows must take up his cross. 
Now, this is interesting when you think about it because the cross hasn't happened yet. They don't have any idea what he's talking about. They don't know he's going to die on the cross and be raised again. They just know he just says, you must take up your cross. The cross was an instrument of Roman torture and death. It'd be like saying, you know, I need you to take up your electric chair and follow me. Take up your hangman's noose and follow me. How could they possibly understand that? I don't, and I don't think they did at this moment. Because what does he mean? He does not mean that we have to go to the cross and die for our sins. He's going to do that for us. We'll see that later in the story. However, he does mean we are to be willing to suffer for his name for the sake of the gospel. And this is true because followers of Jesus have always had to walk against the current of culture. Always. Now, in our culture, we haven't seen such suffering like that. Many people believe it's coming. We have to be prepared. Jesus is talking about identity. He means that we need to be people of the cross, people who identify with the cross of Christ. He's calling us to find identity, not in ourselves, the way the culture talks about it, but in the cross. The cross tells me two things about myself. It tells me I'm irreparably broken and tells me I'm unimaginably loved. Both of those things I learned from the cross. The third thing Jesus says is, follow me. Verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So what here is Jesus saying about following him? He's saying there's a cost. There's a cost, and the cost is yourself. The cost is everything you have depended on to give you worth and identity, to make you someone. The cost is the death of that self. But notice there's also a benefit, a promise. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Do you hear that? The promise is life. Now the word used for life here is the Greek word psyche, which means more than physical life, more than biological life. It refers to the soul of a person or the self. Not life or self as defined by our culture, not life as defined by what I think I am or what I want to be, but life and identity defined by the cross. And the cross promises four things. You've heard me say this many times. First, a new heart. Last week, Jesus taught us that the problem in the world is sin. And sin begins in the heart, and the cross is the payment for that sin. So by the cross, we are given the promise of new hearts. And then, secondly, new identity. When Jesus says, whoever loses their life for my sake and the Gospels will save it, he's saying that all the things that our culture tells us define us and make us someone, that give us identity, all of them, our work, our career, our accomplishments, all of them are going to disappear. All of them are going to fail. All of them are going to fail you and me eventually. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, I count all things as loss, garbage, rubbish, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Jesus is saying that the, only the one who made you, only the one who knows you, only the one who loves you, only the one who dies for you can tell you who you are. New identity. Thirdly, the cross gives us new purpose. Remember when Jesus called the very first disciples? 
Andrew and Peter. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That is, follow me and I will give you an eternal purpose. And lastly, new destiny. He gives us a new destiny. He says here in verse 9, verse, chapter 9, verse 1, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. There's some debate about what Jesus means here. Some think he's talking about the transfiguration, which is going to happen in just a couple of chapters. Some think he's talking about his resurrection, which we'll get to eventually. Some think he's talking about the coming day of, of, of uh, Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes on the church with great power, first chapter of Acts. In any case, he's clearly promising something new, a new destiny for his followers, an eternal destiny for those who know him. Some of you will recognize the name of Sir Ernest Shackleton. Uh, he was a British-slash-Irish explorer who became famous in the early part of the 1900s for his expeditions to Antarctica. He wanted to be the first man to reach the, the South Pole. Uh, before one of these extremely dangerous um, expeditions, the legend has it that he posted an advertisement in a London newspaper. And if you can't read this on the, on the screen, I'll read it for you. Wanted men for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, Long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. Now, I've read that many historians believe this is a legend, that he never actually posted this particular ad, but in my opinion, he should have, because it's a great ad. In a sense, that's what Jesus is saying to us today. It's what he was telling his disciples 2,000 years ago. I am your king. I am the Christ. I've come to restore all things that are broken, and I will pay the price myself caused by sin. And I'm calling you to follow me. Follow me to the cross. And that journey is costly. It will cost yourself. But my promise is a new heart, a new identity, a new purpose, and a new destiny. He says, follow me. Will you bow with me as we close today? Lord Jesus, I thank you today for your word. And now we thank you that you are the king who is able and has paid the price that we owe and we cannot pay. You are the king who can restore what we cannot restore. You're the king who can heal what we cannot heal. And we thank you for the call you offer us to follow. Help us understand that your call is indeed costly. You demand ourselves, all of us, and help us to trust that your call is good and gracious and your promises are more beautiful and more glorious than we can even begin to imagine. Help us by your spirit to follow you. It's in your name that we pray.